Andy, it's Nick. Just calling to say, man, I see you out there working hard. Looks like you're doing really good. Um, selling shows out all over the place. I'm just wanted to call and say I'm really, really proud of you. And I bet you. Hey, it's Schwartz. Um, I'm glad he didn't answer. I'm pretty fired up at the moment. I'm not. I'm not happy with you. I, you know, our my problem used to be making sure you didn't take drugs from the crowd and do them on stage and thereby get arrested. And now I, I have to fucking tell you to not give drugs to the crowd? What what kind of fucking world are you living in? I'm on the Fro Ambassadors page, and I see you're handing out what looks like mushrooms. Let's hope they were fake. Is that a thing? Fake mushrooms? I don't know. But, Andy, I am not fucking joking. You cannot take drugs from the crowd and do them on stage. And guess what? You cannot... Take drugs that are already on stage and give them to the crowd. You will get arrested and you will go to jail and then you will be fucking bumming. And you will kneecap your entire career and you will not go to Japan and you will not go to fucking China and you will not go to Canada. And it's a bummer. We're working too hard. You work your ass off. What the fuck? Who gives Shit to the crowd. I've never seen this in my entire life. It's I, 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 Andy. You gotta rein it in. Can we clap? Via Lisa. <laughs> and we're live. Andy Frasco's World Saving Podcast. I'm Andy Frasco. Um, on location, and we have my co-host sitting in. What is that? A lazy? You have a lazy boy at your house? It's like I have a couch with a recliner in the end of it, you know? Wow. Look at that. Look what money brings people. Some people buy <laughs> some people buy instruments. Some people buy lazy boys. Oh, yeah. Gerlach, how we doing, buddy? Doing great. I just got back from Secret Dreams. I'm hanging out with Keno now. That looked like it crushed. It crushed. Especially the electronic stage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, it seemed like there was a shit ton of people there. For the first... Uh, I don't want to talk about like I, I'm pretty sure they like definitely hit their goal for their first year. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. I, I don't I don't know the exact number, but I know they sold over seven thousand tickets, which is pretty wild for a first year festival. Let's fucking go, boys! That's what we're talking about. The girl off bump. They got the, the girl off bump. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! I am beat Once up. Once again, the. Yeah, it seems like you guys have been going hard as fuck lately. Oh god, seven shows in a row. Uh, are any of them private? One was you a said, private for Deep Eddies, and one you bombed, and one I bombed. Yeah, I was. What show? Oh, Cape Cod. I bombed. That was the first time I what? bombed in a long time. Was that like a hard ticket show? Like, what was going on with that? It was a hard ticket show. It was a Sunday on the Cape. It was just kind of uh, like I don't know. It was all the like, kids went back to school. Yeah, it was like a, a few bunch of old people. And no disrespect to old people, but they weren't, I just wasn't landing anything. Nothing was landing. I got a couple, you know, claps from Snapchat songs. It was just really what? weird. It's not really an old, but you do have old fans that go hard too. You know what I mean? Like I know. I, maybe it was just an off day. Maybe it's just those Cape Cod rich people and they don't want to let loose. I it, don't know. It definitely humbled me. I would love to see you bomb. I have never seen you bomb before. It's got to be hilarious. I've only seen like 800 people carry you on their shoulders. <laughs> like you just won the Super Bowl. I've never yeah. seen you bomb before. It sounds awesome. Yeah, it was definitely a humbling experience 
um, you know, when you when you're on a roll, and uh, all of a sudden you have a shitty show. Um, and it, I was just in my head, and I was like, "Damn, do I still got it?" I'm like, "Oh, I needed this. I needed to learn from this." To, it's good for you. It's good yeah. to bomb. I think it is good to bomb. Oh, definitely. Every comedian says it's like, first of all, it's the worst thing that ever happens to him, and the best thing that ever happens to him. Here's the thing about you hecklers out there. If you really want to get back at a comedian, instead of heckling them, just sit in silence. I think that would affect them way more. <laughs> don't, don't you think that's true? Like, what would you rather hear? I would almost rather be have. I would rather be booed than have no reaction. Yeah, you're personally. right. Yeah, you're right. I would rather have someone go, "You piece of shit!" Like you went too far. Well, at least I did something. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was making everybody chant drugs at Secret Dreams during my set. It was so funny. Oh, I got yelled at too. I guess there's a video flying around the Fro Ambassadors of me throwing oh, no. mushrooms in the crowd. Hey, and quick, uh, quick message to the Fro Ambassadors. We love you. Let's not narc on Andy, guys. Let's let's keep it to a <laughs> let's keep it to a fan relationship. We don't need to be sending Brian videos and narking on Andy, or there will be no ambassadorship left to engage in. <laughs> It's going to be God. Andy's real estate company. You won't even be able to get a real estate license. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Because we were already, you know, he was already, you know, pissed that we're having a bender. You know, we've been on a bender, but. Have you guys been bending? We've been bending a little bit. Bending a little bit. Yeah. That? I like that. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. About, about you guys, though, uh, uh, binging whenever you guys are in one place, which you were in one in Nantucket for a week, you yeah. know, it's going down, you it's know, it's going down <laughs> the fresco boys. You can't, you can't have that being in one place for a week. It's in, in, in a luxury, like vacation spot of all places. <laughs> You're right. We were, we were keeping it. We stayed at the studio all week, but yeah, we were, you know, ripping mushrooms all day and, you know, oh, having, yeah, that's, having that's IPAs. Healthy, yeah, <laughs> that's healthy. I think mushrooms. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're healthy at this point. You know, that's a thing I was thinking about too. Like, I guess I could get in trouble for throwing mushrooms in the crowd. You could definitely. You could. Like, I could like go to jail for a long time. You think? Um, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but <laughs> I, it just depends on what state you're in. I guess maybe in Colorado you might not, because I think they're decriminalized here, but. Where were you, Massachusetts? They're pretty chill about drugs, actually. Yeah. So I don't know. No, we were in uh, Rochester, uh, New York. Oh, well, they got way bigger things to worry about there than some Jewish guy throwing mushrooms. To Schwartz people. was like, cops <laughs> listen to music too, Andy. <laughs> ah, do they, though? I don't know. They're do not they? listening to me. Can they hear it over the sounds of their fists hitting? Never mind. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just riffing over here, guys. I don't. Anyway. Um, Memphis is what fun. Was it? I'm in Memphis. Was Rochester right now. the show you, the festival you did with Lettuce? Uh, no, that was, we, they, we did our own like outdoor festing in, in a farm. And it fucking, oh, I was worried because it was like the fourth time we've been in that area. And we yeah. still brought like 700 people. Let's fucking go. They love us up yeah. there. You're good for 700 and walk up to us this point, Let's I guess. Walk Take note. I like it. Take note, promoters. That um, means you should be getting at least $14,000 guarantees at festivals in that area. Yeah, $20 times 700. <laughs> uh, speaking <laughs> of uh, 
Speaking of uh, shows, Repsy.com. You haven't, oh, yeah. you haven't done the pitch in a while. Why don't you do the Repsy pitch? I've been following Repsy. It looks like they're blowing up a little bit. Yeah, I've been seeing popping. all these, these crazy frat parties. Uh, they've, been, they've been advertising this. They have the South on lockdown right now, especially if you're a party band. I, I feel like if you te- like 10 years ago, you're a little like you don't really you're not where you need Repsy right now. 10 years ago, this would have been perfect for your band. I know I we would have like. fuck. I wish we knew Repsy 10 years ago because we would have played all those frat parties. So so if if you look up to the Fras Andy Frasco in the UN and, and that's the kind of career path you want, <laughs> I would sign up for Repsy right now. <laughs> Let's go. Hey, I'm being funny. That's a good pass. You guys are crushing it right now. You're right. We are. I was surprised. I was worried about all these turnouts being I know. They're I was going to say. fucking killer. Every turnout's been I was going to say, you were whining and crying and complaining a month ago about how these shows aren't doing well. Every time I go online, there's a fucking huge crowd of people. Ryan Dempsey's laying down in the grass <laughs> drunk or something. I don't know. I interviewed, anyway, I interviewed Dempsey. We're putting that out next week with his wife. Of course. You can't you can't marry someone who sees aliens and you and not believe in aliens. That doesn't work. That's like being a different religion or something. You have to some things have to cross over, you know? Yeah. Anyway, back to Repsy. <laughs> back to Repsy. If you're a comedian, if you're a magician, sign up. They'll get you gigs. Here's the thing. You have literally nothing to lose. It's just like a personal injury attorney. You don't pay them unless they get you some money, okay? Same thing. <laughs> And if you already have an agent, they're not going to double your fees. So you're good here. Just sign up. The worst that can happen is you are where you are right now. But from what I've been seeing on their Instagram, you're going to crush it and definitely make more money. So sign up. That was a great pitch. I'm going to clap to you. Yeah. I've been working on my marketing. (laughs) How's dinner? You miss me yet? Uh, I, it does get a little boring without you around. I like to talk to you on this podcast. Yeah. It's weird. I was thinking we've never done it over Zoom. Isn't that insane? Because we have the whole pandemic and everything. I know. Well, you know, we're attached we to the hip this. now. I was like, oh, yeah. I thought something was up. I thought your your Twitter account got hacked when you were saying how much you appreciated me. I love doing that to people. Every once in a while, I give you a little, <laughs> little something to hold on to. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Especially on That's the Disco Biscuits fucking Twitter page, which was even more funny to me. I know that's what I made it funnier. Anytime <laughs> I can be sincere with Brownie, you know, in between NFD NFTs, it's good. But uh, uh, I just, you know, every once in a while, I gotta throw you a bone. It's Tuesday. You're pro- usually you're pretty depressed on Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You haven't you haven't gotten paid like your last days. You get like it's the farthest day between paychecks. It's Tuesday. <laughs> Usually Saturday's your last gig, and then your next one's Thursday. Usually, usually, right now you're on a, you guys are on a grind right now, dude. It's nonstop, but you know we're making you money. A, you are making money, which is nice. Remember the days when you used to grind like this and lose money? Yeah, yeah. Ugh, no, you wouldn't. That wouldn't happen if you had Repsy back then. Every band, every big band I talked to is on a salary. Yeah, I mean that's the way to do it. It's better for taxes, I think, too. Oh man, I'm getting fucked up. The ass with taxes, dude. You have to vote for Ron DeSantis in the next election, aren't you? Just based on taxes <laughs> Jesus. alone. <laughs> it was just like one thing after another. Low dopamine from this bender. The fucking uh, Schwartz like legit tactile. yelling at me. Like legit yelling at me about the drug I know. Thing. I heard, you sent me his voicemail. 
Yeah, I think I'm gonna play in you the front. Mad. I was gonna. I think I might play it in the front of this episode, but he was fucking pissed. And then, dude, he's he sounded six two in that voicemail. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm already in the doghouse, dude. I'm trying to get out of the doghouse. Hell yeah! Just like Bonjourno, Bonjourno never yells at you for partying. No. Bonjourno doesn't. Yeah, Asian. shout out, shout out to Bon. Thank you. That's an agent ride. He understands me. Not like I'm doing it on purpose. Well, kind of, but you know. <laughs> Drugs in the cut. Were you high on edibles? Yes, dialed in gummies. Those things get yeah. me rocking, dude. Hell yeah! I think I've I, been mowing those down. How many have you been taking? I do in like three or four nights. I I'm holding on to these year cans from the last shipment with. My dear life, trying not to eat them. <laughs> oh, you know what you could do? You could go into my house tomorrow and grab. I have like ten cans. I have three cans. I'm holding for you. Oh, sick! Because I got, I yeah. got about ten cans, and I can't. I mean, I ran out on tour, so t- this is oh, the yeah. first week, and you know you can't ship them. That's illegal. Um, but dialed in gummies. Grab, grab some dialed in gummies. Another sponsor, yeah. the best. Keith, you're the best. Keith um, rules. They signed up for another four months of the podcast. Let's oh, yeah. We're back. We We are fucking gummy slingers. Um, Bro, they are flying off the shelf. They're flying. I've been getting people have been um, sharing me with when they buy them and stuff now. So uh, watch out. The fall, we're going to have a world saving podcast gummy collab with them. We're going to make some. We got to figure out what flavor oh, we want to yeah. do. Hmm. Should we do Pink like a lemonade. nasty flavor? So what yeah, you got fuck. What about marshmallow or something <laughs> weird like that? I uh, know. I never. I would like a, the sweet ones are just so good. Yeah, candy is so good. I love candy. I fucking love candy too. Yeah, candy. I, I lost eight candy pounds. Out. Look at look at my body. I lost eight. I pounds. know. Don't I Why look are skinny? You, from, you do look skinny. From what? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm just you know when I'm on the road, I lose that. I lose that 15 pounds. Yeah. The freshman. I just don't. It's, I don't it's really. It's weird eat. because there's there's cal- carbs in in those drinks you'd be drinking. Um, I'm not beers. drinking beers that much. I'm yeah. only drinking Jameson. Whiskey. Yeah. But the great thing about mushrooms, I've been taking mushrooms every day, and the great thing about that is mm. I don't really drink that much on them. I like the natural energy that mushroom gives me. Also, me the mood lift. The mood lift is good for me. Yeah. I've been like dealing you know me. with a lot of personal shit too, and like oh that sucks. Yeah, it's just been so. It's I've been like in a real sad mood. So like the mushrooms mm. I've been taking um them they've been really helping me. So that's good. They're they're good for that. Yep. So get yourself some dialed in gummies and um, get yourself on Eat a mushroom regiment. <laughs> if you're feeling drugs, sad, people. microdose mushrooms. I'm telling you, it makes you feel better. I know everyone <laughs> has their own things about you know. You know, pitching drugs and shit, but for me, psilocybin is the way to go. So if you're feeling sad, go get some psilocybin yeah. in your body. Just try it. You don't like it, you don't have to do it again. Yep. Oh man, I'm going to Barcelona tomorrow. Barcel- Barcelona. Why does everyone say with the TH? Barcelona. Because because that's like the Barcelona accent of the Spanish oh. language. Everyone's that's like, how they I'm say like, it. I'm going to Barcelona. Barcelona. They're like Barcelona. 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 Yeah. So yes. that'd be good. Virgin, awesome. sh- shout out to Virgin Voyages for giving me and wow. my friends a free trip that Nick did not want to go to. I'm like, you fucking dumbass. Why didn't you want to go? I'm to working. 
What are you doing? I'm working all that week. So I'm going on a vacation, guys. So um, Hell yeah. don't bother me. <laughs> Nick, you could bother me. I, I don't know if I'll... I don't bother you very much. I know. It makes me sad because I miss you. I'm out oh, here. Text... I'm out here alone in these streets. Just text me first and I'll, I'll I'll chat it up with you. I don't like to bother people when they're working. I know. Speaking of that, I gotta get I gotta get the sound check. Oh yeah. We this was short and quick, but it wasn't um, that actually wasn't I don't think it was as quick as you think it was. I think we've been on for a good twenty minutes. Yeah. Pretty good. We got um, good for catch a Zoom one. from Old Crow Medicine Show on the show. Oh yeah. I yeah. remember I researched him. He's so smart. I felt like a fucking idiot. <laughs> because really he's just too smart dude he's just he's like he went to school with like the guy the, i'm not gonna say his name but the z word mm-hmm. from, we don't uh, say his from name. the f book word yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we don't like saying his name he went to harvard he went to high, like preps high school with all these oh. geniuses damn yeah. and he wrote that wagon wheel song or he wrote half of it at least yeah he made that he's made he made that money baby let's go that's Remember how big that song was? Huge. And then um, Darius Rucker just re-recorded it, and then he just, you know, probably made more money on the shout-out. Shout-out to writing good songs. Hell yeah. That's yeah. a good way to make passive income. I know. I'm hoping this new... We're almost done with this record. I think it's really good. We just put one out I an know. hour ago. I know. Because I'm fuck. you know... You're a workaholic. I'm a workaholic. And um, maybe that's why I'm so tired. I'm just using my brain on both sides of the spectrum and then trying to have fun with this band music thing because if you don't have fun with it and you just let the business side just take you, then done it fucking for. sucks. Yeah. Hey, don't get into music for the money unless you want to work with Repsy. They might help you. Yeah, that's here's my motivation. Don't get into music for money because no, you're just going to get let down. Or just it takes a while to make money and like for how much work you you put into it, you're never going to feel like it's enough. So you have to take a step back and realize it's for the art. It's for the art. All these musicians out there who listen to this podcast, a ton of them, don't worry about it. Money will come, but do it because you love music. And I'm yeah. falling back in love with music. Hell yeah. Took a Music's second. tight. Yeah. I've been writing. Well, yeah. I'm feeling good. I'm ready to go to Barcelona for, uh, for a couple weeks. And then I got to fly to Canada. For two shows, and then we go to he here see here see here now in Asbury yeah. Park. And then I fly back to Europe for our fucking European tour. I'm going to that, and you're coming with me, buddy. This is Woo! gonna be fun. Are you excited for that? I think so. I'm getting there. Still yeah. a month away. I know. That's how I felt about this Barcelona trip. I wasn't excited about it until now. I'm leaving, you know, in two days or three days, and it's gonna be cool, right? How um, far is that flight? Um, it's only from New York. It's only eight Six hours. hours, eight hours. That's not that bad. It's not bad. Yeah, it's good. So it'll be fun. Mm. Um, and then I got three days in Barcelona until we hit, and then we're doing like the, the Island hop on the Virgin cruise. And I got to be a social media. I'm a, I'm, I'm gonna be, a, I'm an influencer for 10 days, Nicholas. On a cruise ship. On a cruise they really ship. know you. Speaking of the old people demographic. <laughs> <laughs> it's an all it's a it's an adult all cruise inclusive? i wonder if they have like some freaky shit like some like uh, oh definitely sex dude. parties like, and... that's what half the people reason people go to cruises is to have gangbangs i think <laughs> that'd be tight i've never been in a gangbang maybe i'll do be in a gangbang 
Mm. I feel like that would either go really well or really poorly for you. You know who's been on a tear? Who? Actually, I can't even say it. Let me guess. Who? Will you bleep it out? Yeah. Yes. Bro. I'm impressed. <laughs> and he is getting ass. And it is awesome. You know, he's having fun. Mm. He's having fun. I guess yeah, he's got that like energy to him where girls just like want to be around him, you know? I know. It's like multiple threesomes. Multiple. What? Yes. How do you even? But a couple of them were just these one night stands. I'm like, God, let's Whoa, fucking dude. go, my guy. We said we weren't going to say it. And we said his name at least seven times. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go. I got to go to sound check. But Nick, I love you. Your favorite sound check. Oh, yeah. I've been trying to be a team player lately. Well, you've been actually going to sound check. And yeah, singing every and night. I, didn't, I missed, wow. I missed uh, once two sound checks because I'm getting tired. But I feel like you don't have to go to line check, but you can go to sound check. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. very last 10 minutes. I feel bad for Bo. Bo's kicking ass. Jason is... Um, been on vacation for like four days so Bo is like having doing the loadout by himself oh my god yeah, shout sucks. out to Bo Bo's killing it yeah Bo totally. manager. yeah he is really good at that actually yeah all right honestly what if he got another real quick if he got another job after you like another tour manager job like any job would be easy you know he's ready for any job now basically yeah after managing you guys, like, oh yeah, he was tour managing one band. I'm not gonna blast it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he yeah, said, yeah, right. yeah. He was like, this band is so fucking boring. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right. boy, we we tainted you. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never. All right, you gotta go. I gotta go. All right, um, love right. you, Nick. I'll, I'll see you talk next to time you this week. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, be safe, have fun, and uh, good yeah. luck out there. I love you and I miss you. Take care, everybody. You're not gonna say it. I love all of you except for Andy. I'll all talk right, to you guys off. later. I'm ending. <laughs> I'm ending this. Goodbye. We're saving it for the brand. <laughs> all right. Later. Later, bro. Bye. <laughs> later. Get out of here. All right. Next up on the interview hour, we have Catch from Old Crow Medicine Show. Yes. Um, I love this interview so much. Not only is he a genius, but he's... They are one of my favorite bands of all time. I saw them play about 14 years ago at at uh, Hangout Fest, and I was hooked ever since. Uh, the energy, the songwriting, the whole nine, it's just perfect. So, ladies and gentlemen, hey, Chris, play some Old Crow Medicine Show while we're uh, pimping out Catch. He's brilliant, brilliant songwriter, great front man. Um, he's got it all, and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. All right, ladies and gentlemen, next up on the interview hour, Old Crow Medicine Show. Every time I kiss you, girl, Tastes like pork and beans Even though you're wearing those Uptown high heels I can tell from your giant step You've been walking through the cotton field I've been looking forward to this one for a while, and I'm thankful that someone reached out to uh, to make this happen. 
Catch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad someone reached out to make it happen too, because I got to meet you. Yeah, I've I've heard you know, you're one of the first reasons why I play music. Just FYI, I've, I've heard really hundred percent, man. Your live show and how you, I saw you play maybe at Hangout Fest seven years ago, ten years ago. Oh, sure. And down in Alabama, right? Down in Alabama. You're doing this side show, and I was working for Spin Magazine, and I saw you perform, and you were one of the greatest front men I've ever seen and inspired me to do what I'm doing now. So I just want to say thank you. Well, man, I'm glad to do it. I'm, I watched some great front men in my life uh, and, um, on, and heard them on radio and watched them on film and on stage, but mostly on television yeah. and modeled my whole shtick after what I saw. And so I'm glad to pay it forward. And, and now you get to go up there and break a sweat and hopefully not an elbow. <laughs> you know, I got, let's talk about that first before I, I heard you don't have a smartphone or a laptop. <laughs> well, that's, that's how I was when you saw me at the, <laughs> the what's it called? And <laughs> up until about, oh, I guess the pan, I got a smartphone right before the pandemic and it was the best choice ever. <laughs> it's kind of like I had just started smoking in my 40s. <laughs> you know, that feeling of like, God, where have you been all my life? Yeah, exactly. This is great. <sighs> but I'm so glad I didn't start when I was 12. In, instead, it's the other way around. I did start smoking when I was 12, but I didn't engage in screen time, social media dysfunction until I was 40 something. I th and I think that's smarter because I feel like we get way more addicted to the social media than we would of smoking cigarettes. No, I, I, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, for me, it wasn't smoking cigarettes. It was chewing tobacco, which I also started doing when I was 12. And once I started chewing tobacco, God, it's like, just, I never wanted to quit that. I would have died doing that, but I've since stopped. Um, and I've since started doing social media, but I could take it or leave it. Moderation yeah. is one of those things. that's like an elusive dance partner. You're always trying to make sure that she is top of your dance card. Yeah. And how hard is it to um, have moderation in your life catch? Well, I work in bars for a living. <laughs> I go to bed about four o'clock in the morning and that's normal. Um, yeah. But you know, there's other aspects of my life that keep me, you know, straight and narrow. Like I have children uh -huh. and I'm a, I'm a community activist in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm involved with a, all kinds of things. And, so I have like a professional hat that I put on sometimes. And, um, but even when I'm wearing my professional hat, I'm still doing it like a, like a tobacco spitting front man with a violin tucked under my elbow. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, let's talk about that. You know, 12, you know, 12 years old, getting all these things thrown your way, like cigarettes and chewing tobacco. Tell me about your childhood a little bit. Where are you from? And I thought, aren't you from Canada? No, but I'm 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 so touched that you say that. <laughs> my my resources are too exhausted to even bear mention uh, how glad I am that you said that. Um, but no, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I digress. I I lived in a whole bunch of different states. By the time I was um, a, um, a, a fifth grader, I lived in five states. And that's when I had moved to Virginia. And that's mm -hmm. where I think of myself as being raised, even though 
there was a real kaleidoscope of other places when I was a smaller kid, including Louisiana, St. Louis, and New Jersey, and Missouri. Uh, but once I got to Virginia, things really kind of stabilized, and my family quit moving. Uh, yeah. And that's where I learned um, a passion for music. But really, it started on um, in, in community theater and in plays in school. I just wanted to be up on a stage and memorize my lines. And I really wanted to kiss the girl at the, at the big, you know, end of the show. <laughs> well, that's, that's perfect. I mean, in, in that sense, you know, maybe you got adjusted to traveling so much because growing up, you were traveling so much. Yeah. And as soon as I was, um, you know, of age too, or, you know, even before when I, when I was about 14 or 15, I would just ride the train everywhere. And that's when I first played on the street corner. It was on a, I went out to work in this you know, this commune type of place where they lived in teepees and grew a lot of different things, including vegetables, which we sold at the farmer's market. This was out in Washington State. So I took the train out there. And at the summer, I turned 15 or 16. And that was um, when I first played on the street corner. It was, it was um, I had about 12 hours to kill in Chicago before the, the um, before they put the double-decker cranes on. Because, you know, when you go west... You got to stop in Chicago first. Yeah. What did you like about being on the train? Well, I've been on the train since I was a kid. Um, we always chose Amtrak and we happened to live in a bunch of Amtrak markets when we were kids. So none of my peers ever rode Amtrak. Um, mm -hmm. But to me, it was the most normal thing in the world to go out of your way to drive to a train station at two o'clock in the morning to catch a train with your mom and dad and your sisters. It's fucking cool, man. What did what'd your parents do growing up? They were teachers. They are teachers. They're retired. They're both alive, happy, healthy, 70-somethings. Yeah. Uh, they were born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. And dad was always pretty nostalgic dude. You know, he's always talking about the past. He's always talking about his, like, German Oma, you know, who lived at the Plaza Hotel in Toledo, which was basically federal housing. But he made it sound like it was a turkey dinner every night. <laughs> You know, even though she was probably eating out of cans and smoking generic cigarettes. <laughs> Do you think that's who taught you how to be a storyteller? Uh, I think my dad, my dad always said he wanted to go into radio. I mean, my dad is a, is a, is an elementary school principal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my dad is very like girls and boys, you know, he's very articulate and has a voice that has, that draws you in and makes you feel because when you're in the school business, it's kind of like country music. Your demographic is mothers <laughs> and not mothers and older mothers. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like, uh, you know, 29 to 49 year old white women. That's who country music has decided is the demo they need to serve. That's who everyone is serving. Ask Darius. It's true. <laughs> so it's actually, you're, you're spot on about that. What is it about, um, country music that older women, Come so intrigued with? Well, it's it's a highly commercial format, um, and it's you know it's it's that's nothing new. It was that way when I was a kid, but it had much more of a connection to its older honky tonk twang self. Right. Uh, and nowadays, you might hear an artist occasionally who has a throwback, mm -hmm. but oftentimes the throwback is really put on because throwback is kind of like a major on-brand thing for country music to do and has been, you know, since the whole genre got started. I'm convinced that, um, that 
that uh, suburban white housewives tend to be the demographic of country music because um, because country music is a really safe bet. And mm-hmm. country music prides itself on this quote unquote accessibility. But it's this kind of American, this outdated sense of accessibility. Who who is who has the privilege to access this? Suburbanites. Yeah. Middle class. And then who else would like to access this but can't? You know, and then you start exploring the sociology of, you know, the white South and also white rural places. And you see that the interplay between Trumpism and the fans of country music are, you know, bedroom buddies. Right. Everyone wants to be successful. And if you don't have a hand on the on the cultural ladder, if your closest rung is a super Walmart 25 miles away from your mobile home. Yeah, uh, you want to hold on to that real tight, and you want to listen to the kind of music that makes you feel several rungs above that. Right. If you know what I mean. So, w- why are we so fascinated with this illusion still? Oh man, I, I think it's just age old Americana, not in the genre sense, no. not at all, but in the in the in the ways that we like to tell ourselves a story to feel better about the harsh reality that it costs the price of this freedom, the price of of becoming the leader of the, you know, free world and whatnot, you know, it, it didn't come easy. And it, and, and the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness was not available to everybody. Right. So now that it is kind of available, is the American dream dead? The old idea of American dream, or is it kind of brought on something else? Well, that's, that's a great question for us all to be thinking about in times like these, I, I think my answer would be that, no, the American dream is very much alive, but it's possible that it's being dreamed somewhere outside of America more successfully and, and with, um, with, uh, with more passion and drive. Right. So why are we still that, believing? That, why are we still oh, believing in the Walt illusion? Disney and Lee Iacocca and Donald <laughs> Trump and all those made up stories about grandeur and rags to riches, man. We just love that tale. I I know, you know, I I think of that in in the music industry too. When when you think about when you first started music and stuff and like the idea, the dream was to like maybe, I don't know, actually you should tell me this before me, you know, (laughs) analyzing something that you, what you're about to say. What was the American dream for music for you, Catch? Um, I I think it was uh, really informed by um, Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan probably the most influential people in firm, in terms of my developing the kind of, you know, I, I can't remember if it's the id or the ego. Do you remember which yeah. one of these we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. The ego. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, in my egotistical construction of myself and the mirror of life, I wanted to be like Pete Seeger because I wanted to, um, um, because I wanted to be a proletariat. I wanted to speak for the people and to the people with the language that the people had created. But I also wanted to be like Bob Dylan, which was to say whatever you wanted and be more of an, of a, um, you know, an iconoclast, a, um, you know, like John Milton, like, uh, you know, go, go wayward and be T.S. Eliot one day and P.T. Barnum the next and, you know, Jimmy Swaggart you know, three weeks after that, Bob got to shape shift and do a whole lot of things. Pete is a incredibly consistent performer. Yeah. 
It's fascinating because like, you know, you look at, you know, is, is that a push and pull inside yourself of who you want to be the, the, between the two egos, let's say? Oh, maybe. Um, I think that it, it all probably happened when I was about 12 and I just settled on the path that was unfolding. I'm not really wrestling with a should I, shouldn't I kind of thing. I've been in a band for 23 years. So I think that's, you know, um, an indicator of my confidence that I picked the right path. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, that I'm here in my middle age years now and I'm like, hell, I can do whatever the hell I want to. I don't gotta get on that bus and go to fill in that damn radio convention. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So tell me about the path when it wasn't, when you were 12 years old, what was that path? Like when you first picked it? Well, I, I, um, I, I went upstairs to my attic, um, because, um, I don't know why I went upstairs to my attic. Oh, because my uncle had moved to the Philippines, uh, to be a teacher. And, um, and then all he brought all of his crap to our house and upstairs in the attic suddenly was all this new stuff. And, um, and anyway, I, there were all these records, all these records. And these records were so cool, man. There was like Stevie Wonder at age 14. It was called Stevie Wonder's Greatest Hits. The kid's greatest hits came out when he was 14. <laughs> That's insane. There's nothing on it that you've ever heard. Yeah. None of those songs are hits at all. Yeah. Um, but they were on Motown. They were on that label. And they were in that marketing conversation that they must have had up there at the at the Motown building when they were right. like, let's call it his greatest hits. Right. <laughs> That's so true. It's like, so those are the guys that are inspiring you. I mean, it seems like your parents were, you know, really deep into education. I mean, as I look, you know, later on in your life, you were a alumni at Philip Exeter Academy. It's insane. Yeah, it was a really good high school experience. So by the time I went away to school, I already had found the records I already had found an old guitar. And then, then the other important thing that happened is that I'd already had a paper route, which meant that I had to get an alarm clock and I happened to get the alarm clock that had an AM radio. Yeah. And just like my dad grew up in a kind of illusion that the past was somehow saintly and beautiful, yeah. I did too. Right. And so for me, listening to AM radio when everybody else was listening to Nirvana's Nevermind, not that I didn't listen to that also, but I also listened to a lot of like, seed and grain reports from the yeah. great plains you know at, at you know at one o'clock in the morning on the am dial you could hear the whole country and i was about 10 or 11 listening tuning in it just i felt so connected with the 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 traffic in cincinnati and toronto everything was i could listen to the radio in new orleans and st louis it was all there and anyway so i got to high school and that's when i started to learn to play the banjo so Going to this like prestigious school and you telling your teachers and your, you know, your friends and stuff that you wanted to play music, was that shone upon or did they want you to like do something else? No, I mean, I think they, I was on, I was a scholarship student. I think being a Southerner, it was actually a kind of diversity for them. Mm -hmm. It was an extremely diverse community. You know, there were kids from all over the world. Um, I mean, lots, lots of international kids, lots of kids from Asia, lots of kids from the Middle East, lots of European kids. Um, there were kids from Africa and then kids from all over the United States. I mean, it was, I went from, I went from the poultry processing capital of the world where I was in middle school to this elite boarding school lineup in on the seacoast of New Hampshire. 
So it was a hell of a trade-off from like the polarized, you know, everything is black and white. You work at the plants, you don't work at the plants. Latinos come and work at the plants or they don't work at the plants right. or your middle class or your upper middle class or whatever. So it was, it was, um, I didn't find right immediately that I fit into high school, but, but music and celebrate sort of becoming a Southerner while I was in new England yeah. kind of helped me sort of foment these, um, th- these insecurities and turn them into strengths. Like I was different than everybody. And it, it never occurred to me to like, have a twang or like wear overalls, but I did as soon yeah. as I was, you know, 14. And then I had dreadlocks and, you know, I learned a lot when I was up North, I went to fish shows and I saw the grateful dead and I went to all these Dylan concerts and all that stuff. And, um, but in my heart, I was always going to be a fiddler. Tell me about those years between 18 and 21, when you started developing your craft, were you busking then? Yeah, I was playing on a lot of street corners and uh, in, in the beginning, I had a couple of different bands, uh, some from my hometown. I moved to Greensboro, North Carolina to get close to the music right out of high school. Uh, and then uh, eventually I started Old Crow in Ithaca. But ahead of that, I was playing basically any, anywhere. Um, I really enjoyed um, working in agriculture, you know, and I was really into the kind of confluence of music and ag. To me, yeah. it was like the same thing to you know, like put in a really beautiful row of beans and watch them come up as it was to learn a song, Right. you know? And like, I worked at a lot of farmer's markets. So like, I would always play at the market and I write little jingles about, you know, what I grew or, you know, if the lady that was selling sweet rolls across the way was real cute, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd have my saw horses up there and I'd lean against them with my overalls on and my silly, like 18 year old, awkwardness, newborn cult kind of <laughs> attitude of, you know, smoking merit cigarettes and singing my songs. You know, when you talk about this mission, I feel like, you know, you say that, you know, Woody Guthrie was talking to you in- internally and stuff. What was Woody t- telling you during those years, beginning years of being? Oh, the- just like, just everything I read, you know, I would read these books of his and or study up on his songs or read, you know, Steinbeck or whatever he was reading. And I just feel like I wanted to be where those things were happening. I really wanted to be at the, um, at the site of, uh, of um, an uprising. And I wanted to be at the site of a, um, uh, of hard scrabble people scratching out a living. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore traditional life pathways and see what was left. Cause I knew that, you know, I read a lot of books that were from the seventies in which the back to the land movement had really inspired a lot of literature and, you know, lifestyle changes. So like I was super into communes when I was 18, I wanted to live on one. I had lived on one. I wanted to go to more intentional living was something that was, you know, attractive to me. And when you look at where those ideas came from, they're really from the 1970s, late 60s, as a kind of result of the counterculture movement. Uh, and I always felt like a 60s kind of kid. So did you ever feel like you never wanted to be a sleepwalker? When you talk about you mean like- living, you talk about living and like having a full purpose in life. Then, So you're basing it on maybe people who just live life without having passion, without having drive, you know, sleepwalking a little bit. Yeah, I definitely was never at risk of that. Like I can barely rest. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. You know, it's what what's so important about living to you? Uh, you know, one thing is coming clear is that it doesn't last forever. Yeah. And it's all you get. Right. So you might as well like really live it up. Yeah. You know, try and take your life and do and give as as much to other people as you can enrich others and be, you know, generous and kind as much as you can, because you only get this one crack at it. So, you know, I just have a, you know, I'm not a, I'm a person that's often like stopping to talk to children. Right. Sometimes the, the dads, like yesterday I was, I did this gig and then I was out in this mall, this pedestrian mall. And this, I was looking at this kid and I just was like, what a beautiful kid. And then I saw the dad looking at me like I was some sort of freak and <laughs> like, like putting on this real protective skin, like puffed up as he like held his daughter's hand closer. Right. And like that, you know, I get that. But, you know, I was just looking at that kid and thinking, God, isn't life beautiful? Right. Look, we start this whole thing out with all this wonder about what is this amazing world that we're living in where it rains right? and the <laughs> wind just feels so cooling? Oh my God. Right. No, it's totally true. Do, do you ever, do you ever in your career with your band, you know, like with that philosophy, sometimes we forget to do that to the people surrounding us. <laughs> Does that make sense? Do you ever regret any of the times not doing that with the, some of your band members? Uh, I mean, no, I mean, I was, I, I wish if I, if I got any regrets about how it all went down, it's a personal one that in my twenties, particularly in early thirties, I was just really, really stressed out about this, this lifestyle and gig. And, you know, it was, I was so worried. I just could barely enjoy any, any part of, of what I was building very successfully for you know, somebody that was going to play the fiddle for a living. I was Charlie Chaplin, yeah. you know, like this is, I don't know how you get better off than, you know, when you can play the violin in cross tuning and be a self-taught player and turn your journal entry songs into, you know, hits or anthems or whatever yeah. and travel the world. I mean, I don't, you know, like, yeah, maybe I could get like a, a second bus or like a, <laughs> I could, you know, yeah. I could fill an arena or something, but I, I'm cool with where things are at. I, I'm, uh, I just wish that I could have enjoyed the ride a little bit more, especially when it was so dicey. Yeah. Talk about those years when it was dicey. Like what was making you not appreciate the life? Well, it was a really dysfunctional collection of human beings. Yeah. You know, it turned out that, that, the people that I had assembled to help me do this mission, you know, who are all in different parts of their own lives and journey, were not were not overwhelmingly a cast of characters who were going to be able to pull off the mission forever. Now they might have for some time or an intermittent, you know, in and out, in and out kind of thing. Like right. I'm in the band for a little while, now I'm gonna go sober up, or now I'm gonna go work on this stuff, and then I'll come back. And so there was that, or there was just, you know, I mean, from the minute we started the band, there was somebody new in and somebody old out. Yeah. So that part of it was just part of the evolution of it. But uh, yeah, you know, interpersonal conflicts, I think were probably, if anything was going to sink us, it wasn't that we sucked or that we, you know, weren't going to get a big break. It was that we were going to self-destruct. Self-destruction was pretty 
um, uh, pretty uh, epidemic in the old crow in the early 2000s. Yeah. Did it put pressure on you? Like, cause this is your baby. This is your dream child. And to feel like it's hard to find a group of guys to envision the same thing you envision, it must've been overwhelming at times. Yeah. I'm, I always kept a, like a lot of, um, um, pots on the stove at the same time. So, and I'll, I'll often sort of keep things compartmentalized as a, as a, the way my brain works. Right. Uh, and so maybe I, maybe I wasn't really sharing that with anybody. I was just sort of taking it, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's a shield because the thing that you have so precious and that you cared about forever, you didn't want it to be fucked up from someone who didn't care as much as you did. Yeah. But I also didn't want to punish anybody for not feeling what I felt. Right. Uh, and so some of the relationships, they just went on too long because I didn't know how to say, Hey, I think you might do better off doing your thing. Were you scared to say that? Oh yeah. Terrified. Why? Um, well, it didn't seem like, uh, I don't, I, you know, it took me about, I guess about 35 years to say no to anything or anyone. Yeah. I mean, I said yes to some pretty uh, untoward advances. Like what? Give, what's the worst one you still think about? Um, you know, when you have that dream about, you know, when you have a dream in which you find yourself like going to a really dark or inappropriate place and you're like, Oh man, I'm so glad this is a dream. <laughs> I would never have made this choice in reality. Right. Um, you know, I I you know, I felt that I did make that choice in reality and you know, um sometimes found myself in a you know, really compromised state, you know, whether it was sleeping out of doors with, you know, um in a sketchy situation with drug addicts. Um, you know, down, I remember one time being in Buffalo, you know, it was a snowstorm and I ended up with, you know, in this, you know, needly kind of part of town and I was, I slept there and it was really, really sketchy. Yeah. Um, and the only reason that I allowed it to happen is because I made some friend, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, because I rode Greyhound and, you know, I mean, I was 26 and people came up to you and I had a nice or good enough backpack. Yeah. So, you know, I just felt like I, sometimes there were parts about my personality that I had a little bit of a target and, yeah. uh, and yet I put it up there. You feel like you get taken advantage of a lot? No, no, it's not like that. It's just that I didn't know how to say no until I was 35. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Uh, were you getting into like drugs heavily in your twenties? No, I mean, not really. I mean, I was always around it. And, yeah. You know, had my own little bouts with with it, but it wasn't ever something that I didn't have control of. But I, you know, I did have a drinking problem. Yeah. What um, do you think that self-constructed, self-destructed, not constructed, self-destructed the band a little bit because uh, everyone had their own addictions? Well, self-destruction was the issue with, with the early days of Old Crow and everybody had their own way of, you know, making that manifest. Yeah. 
Um, for, for some, it was to escape. For others, it, I mean, for, for some, it was like me, it was to escape the band. And for others, it was to escape the demons and, you know, that they were hearing. Yeah. But it, everybody was looking to, to self-medicate and, you know, figure out how to cope yeah. with pain. Yeah. It, and discomfort. Yeah. And, you know, that it breaks my heart to think that you were discomfort, you weren't comfortable in your own band. What, why were you dis? why weren't you comfortable with those guys? I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but maybe we could talk about it a little more if you don't mind. Um, well, you know, I, I, um, I guess I didn't, I, I mean, it's really hard to go into it all and not be like, you know, super explicit about it. And I've sort of saved some stories I've just kind of saved for myself to tell when I feel like, let me tell you, one time I was working on this thing with Ken Burns called country music. And, and I said, Ken, why does the movie stop in 1999? I mean, it's 2017. He said, Oh, cause I think it takes about 25 years to understand what happened. Oh. And I don't like to tell a story until I know it. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the news is is in and the you know the the you know this is called literary criticism the lit crit types yeah so you know i'll be ready to tell those stories you know but they're still even hard for me now yeah yeah i get i i it's like a brotherhood man have you ever like had any public fights like on stage you ever used to beat the shit out of each other um no, I think we kept things pretty much within, you know, the sphere of of ourselves and our, you know, our band community, which was troubling because it was so internalized. I don't think anybody knew. Like, I don't think my mother knew how unhappy I was. Yeah. And did you have a girlfriend back then or like a, a wife or anything that knew? Uh-huh. And yeah. I don't think she knew about it either. When did you guys start getting successful as a band? How old were you? Well, success always felt um, immediate because we were buskers. So, you know, we we were starting with without even a gig. So wow. we would we go into a town like say we'd play Ottawa. We'd go into Ottawa, nineteen ninety eight. We'd we'd go set up downtown wherever there was like some tourists or something going on uh -huh. and by the time it was over we'd have you know a case full of money we'd all be about two three beers in and we'd have a gig the next night because <laughs> that's what somebody would have tipped us with was hey you guys should be on the stage yeah uh and so um the success felt immediate and it was um you know, not addictive isn't the word because it was just so beautiful. It was miraculous right. is what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. So do you feel like those are the best times of your life when you're busking with your band versus playing theaters and having a hit or? No, I, I like it better now, man. Life's yeah. so much richer. There's so much happening in so many ways to, to uh, shine my light. And to be the recipient of of the lights of of other people around me and that of the world, 
I, I, um, I mean, I, I love that it happens when it did. And I have wonderful memories of being a street corner performer and, you know, I do it every night. It's the same act. It's where I learned how to do everything. Right. I'm a self-taught musician and entertainer. And I, I learned how to do it by traveling real hard and living real hard and, you know, sleeping in all those crazy places and homeless shelters and meeting all them crazy people and turning them into songs. And, you know, I just feel like my access points to that part of me is, is will be with me my whole life. Like I'll never not be able to write a song because there's so many song worthy things I've already seen and done. And many of them I did like before I was like 23. Yeah. And it's probably the harder part is to just remember all the fucking stories. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have a really acute memory. So they all, I can, you know, I wish I had written stuff down because what I don't have is a very good spatial memory of like when it or chronology. Right. Um, but like, I can remember like dressing rooms I puked in 20 years ago. So like, crazy. The color of the walls and stuff. Like, we're. Is it a blessing and a curse to remember everything? <laughs> no, I think it's just a blessing. I mean, yeah. I don't really cringe about things in the past anymore. I did for a long time. I think if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd say blessing and a curse. Right. But now I'm, I've. I feel good about all the things that I used to get squeamish about. I mean, too, uh, yeah, I could still get a little squeamish. Yeah. Yeah. What about your relationship with like Willie? Are you guys on good terms or how'd that? Oh yeah. We, 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 yeah. Willie Watson and I, you know, we didn't talk for a while and we parted ways and that was unpleasant and everything, but um, it's not really like that anymore. And we've really found peace and harmony we sung together and corresponded and talked on the phone and you know we text each other now i i was in touch with him at moral fest this weekend he was the day before us i you know yeah um i'm trying to book a show with him right now so yeah i mean we're, we're pretty good there all right do you hold grudges or are you a guy who lets things go eventually um I think that uh, I'm a person who has a hard time moving on, yeah. you know, stubbornness. Yeah. So it's not so much like I'm like holding resentment. It's just that I, you know, I'm so used to the, I mean, the bus just rolls. You just get on board. It doesn't even matter if you're happy or sad or if your kid just learned to walk or crawl or you just got into a fight with somebody you love or you, you're worried about something, money or yeah. something. You just get on board and then you just ride and then you go play a bunch of shows and then people all react like, you know, like you're a great dude. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, it just keeps on happening again and again. And so as long as they keep reacting that way, you can sort of live in a bubble of, well, everything's pretty placid on yeah. the road at least. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me because uh, do you know Vince Herman from leftover salmon? Sure. Yeah. You know, he's a road dog too, and he's been like that his whole life. And that's one of my mentors. And, you know, I talk about, he talks about like intention and what, you know, do you know Colonel Bruce Hampton too? Do you familiar? Yeah. You know, I saw Colonel Bruce when I was 14. I wanted to be just like him. Yeah. Tell me about that. What, what did you see in him? 
because I'm I've never got I was unfortunate enough to never meet him before he passed, but I all my mentors was a big it was he was a big inspiration for him. Yeah, I, I loved him. You know, I I saw him just one time because I you know, I was in high school and he was on the horde tour ninety four, you know. Yeah. Horde <laughs> tour was great that year. Yeah, it was it panic. Had, um, it was like panic, Bruce. Who else was on that? Oh, Blues Traveler. Um, wide, yeah, Blues Traveler was the headliner. All the ones that you mentioned, plus All Good was the other one. Oh, yeah, All Good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny. Those are, I mean, that was the original festival, traveling festival, it felt like. I know for me, it felt like I was bearing witness to whatever remained of the 1960s was Ford Tour 94. I yeah. thought it was so great. Dude, it's badass. What do you, what do you think of the music industry in 2022? What's uh, your take on it? Um, well, uh, I, we just put a new record out and it's been our most um fun and seemingly successful launch. Uh, you know, that nobody buys records anymore, so it's hard to calculate it in terms of you know, like um did you make a bunch of money? Did you sell a bunch of records? It doesn't have the same kind of quotient any longer. Yeah. But if, um, but if you look at it just in terms of, uh, you know, like the joy quotient, I never had so much fun putting out a record. Right. I love my lineup. I, I was on a major label last couple album cycles and they were cool, but it wasn't a great fit. Yeah. Um, and so now I've gone back to ATO and that's been a great and welcome return. I love ATO. I feel like I'm a part of a community. I've got this great management deal cooked up with my, you know, basically one of my best friends is my manager and she's amazing. And she's in partnership with red light, which is part of the, you know, stakeholders of ATO and it's just all kind of working out. And then I got this great lineup yeah. with um, th this particular lineup of old crow members is, this is the best it's ever been. I mean, we just have so much fun together. It's light. It, we, you know, we didn't pay for it in blood, so yeah. it's a lot lighter. Well, you did, but those guys didn't. <laughs> we played actually played with you guys last year at um, Hogs for the Cause Hogs in New Orleans. For the cause. Yeah, and yeah, I remember. Yeah, and Molly Tuttle. I mean, what a sensational find, man. Where did you meet Molly? Yeah, and Molly's amazing. She's got a brand new record out called Crooked Tree on Nonesuch Records. And mm -hmm. I just want to put a plug in for it because I think it's the best bluegrass record that's been made in 10 years, maybe 20. Yeah, do you? Seriously. Yeah, I, I, I agree, man. You know, like with, with the guys, like there's so many bands that you guys inspired. And now like, I feel like there's another upswing in bluegrass music with the Billy strings of the worlds and the Molly Tuttles and the green skies who are doing this experimental traditional music. And I really think you guys are one of the frontiers in that. How does that make you feel that these guys are getting inspired by you catch? Well, you know, I'm honored. Uh, the people that, that inspired me, were um, just the most beautiful souls. And some of them are gone. You yeah. know, a lot of them are gone. Right. You know, they don't make them like John Hartford anymore. No. Or like uh, little Jimmy Dickens. Like that guy was incredible. Right. What a, what a heroic dude. 
right. or Charlie Pride. You know, like Charlie Pride held my kid. Well, they both did. No I mean, both shit. of those men have walked my kid to the bathroom before. So That's... anyway, um, I think having the, um, the good fortune of being in Nashville, I always felt like I was late to the party, you know? Yeah. Like I wanted to be at Woodstock in 1969. I wanted to be in, in Nashville when Bob made, you know, um, John Wesley Harding. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be at, at the Selm. I wanted to be at the Pettit Bridge in Selma, Alabama, when they marched across. I wanted to, you know, push Medgar Evers out of the way when they murdered him from behind a tree. You know, I wanted to be there yeah. for those moments. Right. Um, but I got this moment. This is the moment that I was brought into. And I always felt a little bit like, ah, oh, I'm late for the party. I'm late for the, you know, the moonwalk of life. It's already right. happened. And yet it turns out I was really brought into it in the right time because I've gotten to, you know, mix it up with all, a lot of people who aren't on the earth anymore, you know, and, and like, for example, going to see Jack Clement, who was the guy that was, who was like saying into the mic, you know, have you got anything, anything a little bit, uh, coax a little bit more? And that's when Jerry Lee Lewis was like, oh, I can play this. And then starts playing great so balls insane. of fire. <laughs> it's insane, man. You know, it's like you talk about like wanting to be part of an uprising, you know, and like we really haven't had a really an uprising until the last couple of years, maybe. What do you think? Have you been a part of any uprisings in the last 20 years? No, no, not at all. Yeah. There were, I think we're living in a, we're living in a, in a dip, in a cultural dip. Explain you know, that. I, I think when they, well, I think when they talk about this time, I mean, to extrapolate the Ken Burns-ism of, of takes 25 years to tell a story. I mean, it takes 500 years to tell a story too. Yeah. And so look at Shakespeare, you know, there's yeah. a 500 year old story we're, t we're still telling. So what are they going to tell the story of? in you know 25 22 yeah i mean i don't think it's going to be about americana or nashville or bluegrass <laughs> it's very true but like well even take that in in regard of american history i mean our country is so such a new country that if you're talking about this 500 year philosophy then we don't even know who what america is well, I think what, what they'll be talking about in 500 years is the last century. I think that the 20th century um, was one of the most astounding and destructive periods of time, the most volatile and um, um, shocking and beautiful and tragically flawed and ruinous right. times that have ever, ever come. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a, a more glorious century. And... Um, a more despicable one. So I don't know why they bother telling any other story than what happened from about 1900 to 2000. I know it's, it's, it's insane. And like, why are, why is it harder to be like an uprising songwriter? Why can't we talk about these things? We, we can. And it's beautiful because there's a whole lot of fresh ears out there. Like that little girl that I scared her father. <laughs> or made him feel like he had yeah. to growl at me yeah. last night. Like that little girl, she's never going to know that Bob Dylan sang, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home, a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. Yeah. She'll never hear that. I mean, maybe she will someday, but not feel in it a bar on her phone when she's 23. But in terms of music affecting her, 
that's a voice that we have the power right now to be the, you know, to be the expression of, to put a, a song in somebody's ear for the first time, you know, to, for the, for kids today to hear a song that makes them challenge authority and, and feel strength inside and want to rock out and feel the power that, um, that music has, has the ability to, um, to instill in you. I mean, those are voices like yours and mine. We have that ability now. Yeah. Is it harder for you to see the bigger picture as you get older and, you know, more miles on your body about what, what is the meaning and why I'm doing this? No, no, I think it's get simpler. You do it because, because you're in the service industry. Yeah. You, you took an oath to provide a good time. Right. And you might have a good time doing it. And that's great. <laughs> you know, you, that is so true. It, you know, it's like I had this talk with one of my favorite songwriters, John Craigie, and he taught it. These songs aren't for us. <laughs> or maybe they are. are. These songs for you or are they for them? I mean, they're, they're coming from me. So they're for me and in as much as, you know, they're, they're a way for me to focus experience and feeling and passion. That's all very much of me. Um, but I write a lot of topical songs that are about, you know, things that aren't me or might be like, you know, one of my favorite songwriters, uh, when I first heard the, the my uncle's record collection up there in the attic was a guy by the name of Phil Oaks. Phil was always sort of like a, like a lesser Bob, you know, like, um, you know, like in the, in the patriarchy would be like Bob, Donovan, Phil Oaks, Tom Paxton, yeah. whole bunch of others. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, um, I always loved Phil Oaks before I heard Bob Dylan, which is, I think what a lot of people thought too. So anyway, Phil Oaks been gone a long time. He wrote topical songs. He wrote songs that, you know, straight out of the newspaper. Bob wrote these too. A lot of, a lot of folk singers wrote these, um, you know, you're, you are the news. You're the, you know, you're a kind of, um, you know, memorable CNN. Right. And what, why is it so, you know, it's like, and I talked about this too, like topical songs, topical songwriters. Do you ever get a moment where like you, you have that, you feel like it's a great topical song. And then a year later, it's just like, no one, no one cares about that topic anymore. Uh, I think the pandemic had that a little bit. Yeah. I remember you, you had know, that COVID song, us. which was funny. It was great. It, I mean, the lyrics were awesome on it. You, last year, it was like something about something about sneezing or something. Uh, God, I can't remember. Yeah, it, it was called "I'd Like to Kiss You, But I'm Quarantined." Yeah, dude, I love that, dude. Can you still play songs like that? Uh, we did it all last year. You know, um, there were still a lot of face masks at the show. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, things change, and you don't, you know, the times change, and you and look i got a brand new record out and i i want people to like these songs but they all want to hear the old songs and i don't blame them you know when i yeah. go see bob dylan it's like the only ticket that i really buy yeah like i, I sure as hell don't want to hear what this recorded <laughs> god no it's true does your it chimes of freedom man. does it bum you out do you have to play old songs did you hear that oh does it does it bum you out that you have to play the old no. songs? No. no, I just. Sorry. 
Yeah, she doesn't bum me out at all to play old songs. That I understand why, why people want to hear what they've already heard. You know, they're buying a ticket because they want to hear the way they felt when they first heard it. Yeah. You know, and they might have room in their brains for a, like something new. Um, but I think more so it's a, a feeling of, you know, give them what they want. Yeah. Service industry, remember? I know, fuck. But what about serving Hey, will us? you hold on because there's somebody at the door? Yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, it's like we t- we talk about always serving everyone else, and then the idea of serve what what serves your soul? Serving others? Yeah, you know, I like that game. You know, I like to play that game. I really like social media for this reason because it's so you can uh, feel like you. When I, you never felt, I'm new to this, right? So I haven't done this except during the past couple of years. But like when I send two flames and two banjos above those two flames, like I really mean it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like my emoji sending is really heartfelt. (laughs) Yeah. With intention, like Colonel Bruce. Probably like Colonel Bruce. God, I loved him. He was awesome, man. Yeah. You know, I didn't buy any records that day except for Aquarium Rescue Unit. Yeah, the best with O'Teal and stuff. I mean, those guys really learned a lot from him. And I, and I could tell with like, even with Molly, man, like ever since she's been playing with you guys, I mean, you could see her attitude is completely different. And I just think you are inspiring so many more people than you probably even know. Catch, you are the man, dude. Well, thanks for saying so, and and thanks for giving me an opportunity to jimmer jammer with you a little bit. Yeah, man, and get the word out there. Thanks for the press, man. Yeah, no problem. You man. know, it was my my bandmate said I had to do this podcast. Oh, awesome. And well, I'm glad because you- Mason Vi is a big fan of yours. So Mason, there's a big swirl of of uh, gratitude happening. Well, Mason is the shit, and I'm so thankful you have this band. They all love you, man. I'm just. I'm I'm rooting for you, bro. Always and forever. You were one of the first guys that got me to think about music other than just writing, playing songs, but doing them with intention and doing them with entertaining and just being yourself and being completely authentic with who you are. And, you know, I just want to say thanks, man. You really inspire me. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, bro. Glad to do it. I got one last question. We talk about legacy. Your history okay. buff, you know? And when it's all said and done, what do you want Old Crow Medicine Show and what do you want you to be remembered by? Oh, I want them to think that I sold a lot of harmonicas <laughs> and a lot of fiddles and a lot of banjos and guitars. Yeah. I, love I it. want them to think about me as a musical instrument dealer, like the music man. Remember, he got yeah. off the train Harold in Hill. River City. And they all said, there's no music allowed here. Mama don't allow that. (laughs) But by the end of it, he had them all playing in the band. Yeah, That's what I wanted to be, the music man. Well, I I hate to break it to you, but you're doing it, bud. (laughs) Well, you have a great day. Be be safe out there. Take care of the boys and the lady. And uh, I'll catch you soon, buddy. All right, man. Peace. Peace out, bud. Thank you. Fuck yeah, that was awesome. Thanks, Catch. Appreciate you, bud. Wow, that was awesome. God, that guy is smart as shit. <laughs> I was like, God, I don't even know if I'm smart enough for this conversation. So-
You tuned in to the World's Heavy Podcast with Andy Fresco. Thank you for listening to this episode. Produced by Andy Fresco, Joe Angelo, and Chris Lawrence. We need you to help us save the world and spread the word. Please subscribe, rate the show, give us those crazy stars. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're picking this shit up. Follow us on Instagram at World Saving Podcast for more info and updates. Fresco's blogs and tour dates you find at andyfresco.com. And check our socials to see what's up next. Might be a video dance party, a showcase concert, that crazy shit show, or whatever springs to Andy's wicked brain. And after a year of keeping clean and playing safe, the band is back on tour. We thank our brand new talent booker, Mara Davis. We thank this week's guest, our co-host, and all the fringy frenzies that help make this show great. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. Be your best, be safe, and we will be back next week. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast as far as we know. Any similarity, drugs, or knowledge, facts, or fact is purely coincidental.